Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, David French, and Steve Hayes, which is the clockwise order. No, counterclockwise order that I am looking at them right now. We have plenty to discuss. We'll start with inflation and some of the other big picture trends happening in the country. Move on to the political implications, not just in 2022, but ahead to 2024 as well. And then Sweden and Finland, latest with NATO. And lastly, we'll end with things that weren't important enough to make it into this podcast. Steve, I want to start with you. Will you walk listeners through the difference between the consumer price index inflation numbers that we saw, which were sky high, worst in 41 years, bad versus core inflation and why that has a little more hope in it? I mean, no, no, I won't. Because I don't know those details. I thought this was your issue. <laughs> I mean, that is like the ultimate ambush question. Okay. So core consumer price index. Uh, core consumer price index excludes volatile prices like energy and food. The two things that we're, of course, experiencing the most inflation in which is why the two numbers diverge so much. Um, but as to why that's important and why it has good information in it, uh, yes, the morning dispatch, I thought, had the best write-up and explainer. Yeah, look, I think there's, I, I think there's, there's a reason um, that you have some economists saying, look, this is, th- these numbers are bad. I mean, the, the, the top-line number is bad. This is bad news, bad political news for Joe Biden. And that sort of is the big story uh, about the inflation numbers this week. But you had some economists, including people like Jason Furman from Harvard, who's been, I think, very intellectually honest about inflation, was, um, you know, sort of early and off message. He's a former uh, top economist in the Obama White House. Uh, but he was talking about inflation in ways that contradicted much of the messaging from the Biden administration early um, and I think has earned, you know, has earned additional credibility for his willingness to do that. And he says, look, there are, there are reasons that this is not actually that this report, despite what the, the sort of top line says, um, that this is not as bad. Um, so. Basically, his explanation, he walks through the the differences that Sarah says, um, but there's this kind of return to normal, the upper bounds of normal was the way that uh, the morning dispatch said. And it was uh, a slowdown in price increases for goods and commodities. So the example that Declan gave in the morning dispatch was the average cost of footwear increased 1.3% from January to February, but only 0.1% from February to March. Sporting goods increased 0.5% from January to February, but decreased 0.6% from February to March. And then he goes on and talks about cars and trucks, which has been a, uh, cars and trucks have been both new and used, uh, but he focuses on used, have been uh, a key driver of inflation uh, over the 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 past year, past, past year plus really, um, and had significant 
uh, we're, we're significantly cheaper. So there, there are sort of two ways to look at at these latest numbers. Um, the top line number, you know, anytime you're talking about this is the greatest increase in inflation in 35 years, and we've been talking about that now for every month for a year, uh, that's bad news for Joe Biden. And it's not because of what they're saying, but because of what people are feeling. Right. I mean, we all know you go to the grocery store, you buy a pound of ground beef. It's a lot more expensive than it was before. You go to the gas station to fill up unless you're lucky, like I was yesterday when the super premium was actually mismarked uh, and it was like a dollar cheaper for some reason. Um, made mention of that to the to the clerk, but we got we got cheaper gas as a result. Those are the reasons. It's what people are feeling that are the reasons I think Joe Biden is in so much trouble and Democrats are in so much trouble, uh, particularly as we've noted before here, the Biden administration early when when you had people like Larry Summers and Jason Furman and others, again, not conservative economists uh, sounding the alarm about inflation, talking about the, the contribution of the Biden stimulus to inflation. You know, the Biden White House response was this is transitory, sort of a shrug of the shoulders. And that, I think, suggests that that they really didn't get it and in many ways still continue not to get it. So, OK, but when I saw these numbers, the first thing I thought of was how this will uh, separate out through the you know quintiles, however you want to think about it, of income distribution in the country. Because if you're at the top two quintiles, if you will, um, of income, the percentage of your uh, money that is spent, your monthly budget that is spent on those more volatile things, food and energy, is a lower percentage. You have more disposable income. You're also more likely to own a home that has appreciated in value. And so there's an argument that, in fact, you've maybe been made better off by all of this, potentially. At least you are not um, being made substantially worse off. But if you're at that bottom quintile, 50%, 70%, maybe more of your income is going to these things that are off the charts, not in that core inflation of the less volatile, but the more volatile. Uh, and so whether the, you know, you point to core inflation or like, look, see, things aren't so bad. The consumer price index inflation is hitting different people quite differently. And it's hitting the poorest people in the country, I think, far worse. David, what does that mean sort of culturally in the country? Yeah, you know, if you're talking about Democrats increasingly struggling with working class voters, this doesn't help at all. And it also contributes to this sense that and this is something I think we're going to get to more when we talk about politics, but I do think it contributes to this sense of unease that exists in this country, that things are not quite right. I mean, I just filled up my car on uh, taking uh, on the way back from taking my youngest daughter to school. It was $52 in to fill up a, just a normal, you know, like Honda Accord sedan. That's a lot of money. And it just contributes to this overall sense of unease that things are not right. Things are not stable. This isn't normal. And, you know, it's, it's for, when you look at things like uh, Joe Biden's approval rating with multiple demographics just rapidly uh, shrinking, I think it just all comes back to this sense of unease. You have war abroad, you have inflation at home. Uh, 
is there a sense of stability? And, and I think that that has a, when you're talking in particular about working class voters who are most impacted by volatility in food and energy prices, and also sort of the most tenuous part of the democratic coalition, it has big cultural impacts in creating that, um, that sense of disquiet and has big political impacts because you're going to start to blame the people who are in charge when you're feeling this instability. And Jonah, speaking of uh, sort of those voters that Democrats have been alienating or making feel uncomfortable, you know, there's an interesting piece in Axios titled Big Labor is Failing to Meet the Moment. Uh, A lack of leadership and too much focus on DC politics is holding back momentum and unionization Labor advocates familiar with the internal workings of the AFL-CIO say the big picture, you know, they have the White House, there's a tight labor market, workers around the country more likely to unionize, and yet big labor isn't actually capitalizing on the moment. Uh, And that has been such a huge part of democratic politics, organization, sort of that foundational element. And I'm wondering how you see Um, those dynamics, inflation, its effect really down on the lower uh, income brackets, unionization and the tight labor market interacting and, you know, a White House and big labor that haven't been able to get on the same page. Yeah. So you remember that scene in Ghostbusters where everyone's supposed to keep their mind absolutely clear and not give uh, Zool uh, uh, the, the form of the destructor? Uh-huh. And then accidentally, uh, Dan Aykroyd thinks of uh, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Um, I kind of feel like somebody in the White House, maybe Joe Biden, thought of the 1970s. <laughs> and sort of like, you know, but it, it, it's less Ghostbusters and more monkey paw, right? He got his wish. He got, he got elected. He got uh, to spend... What was the final tally on his watch? $3 trillion, something like that. Um, uh, On all of these off-the-shelf liberal priorities for decades, uh, the Ezra Klein types got what they've been dreaming of for years and years and years to run the economy hot, to help poor people, um, and to create full employment and tighten the labor market. Biden also got the vaccines, right? He He got all the stuff. Yeah, I even got to pull out of Afghanistan and all of it has broken badly for him. Every single thing. It's not entirely his fault, but it is like he's cursed. Um, I think the supply chain stuff is still contributing a lot to inflation. Um, and we now have, we have Shanghai going into what it's third week, which is what, probably the biggest industrial manufacturing supply chain hub in the world where no, where people get beaten up if they try to go to work. And so like, this is going to have long tail effects and you're right about the, the differences in the socioeconomic stratum, the whole point of like the sort of modern monetary theory adjacent fiscal policy or, or, or spending policy of, of this White House was uh, to create, you know, um, positive climate for people at the lowest end of the, of, of the economic ladder. And they're the ones who are getting screwed by all this. Meanwhile, people who have assets, you know, they may not like to spend as much as we're spending at grocery stores and as much as we're spending on gas, but if you own a home, if you own a second home, if you own cars, if you own stocks, um, you'll take a short-term hit in all of this stuff, particularly on the stocks part, because the stock market hates inflation. But 10 years from now, if you can afford not to sell any of your assets during all of this, 
the reality is, is that this is causing a greater divide, a bigger chasm of income inequality, which was precisely the fundamental problem that these guys have been wanting to fix for 20 years. And um, I don't blame Biden for all of it. And I think that the, 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 the real reason why the inflation is bad for Biden, other than just people hate inflation, I mean, they just hate it, um, is that the one thing Biden could say, one, one, the one truth Biden could tell is the one thing he can't say, which is that they came into the office with just the wrong theory about the economy, that their plans were not well suited to fix the problems that we had, they thought we had a demand side problem in this country and that if they just shoveled cash into people's pockets, that would fix everything. And they were just, the theory was just wrong. And, um, and presidents can't say that, you know? And so he's stuck saying, oh, it's Vladimir Putin's price hike. And it's, you know, this other thing. And, um, and it, so it just make inflation makes people feel like the system's out of control and Biden's responses to it make it feel like he's not in control. And that is a terrible sort of pas de deux of anxiety for um, the average voter. So, yeah, wh why aren't you blaming him more? I mean, let's, let's stipulate that you know, a lot of what we're seeing predated Biden's election and the conditions that are now playing out are are things that were beyond his control. I mean, the supply chain stuff, that's not Joe Biden's fault, at least initially. That's not that's not his fault. Um, but it, but it is his fault that he came in and and did, you know, most everything wrong, that they blew off the people who were saying, look, this is going to lead to inflation, that they insisted on push, pushing levels of spending that they were being told by Democrats in many cases was beyond what was reasonable and would likely fuel greater inflation, push the economy hotter. I think he deserves a ton of blame for that. I, I think, he, Steve, I think he deserves um, all the blame that he deserves, which is ample. Um, but, but, you know, part of the problem is, you know, like there is truth to the idea that right now the Putin, the, the war in Ukraine is driving oil prices up, right? And that's, largely out of his control. And he's actually doing the right thing by trying to get Europe to wean themselves off of Russian oil, which will drive energy prices even higher. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that Donald Trump and the Republicans, you know, they shoveled enormous piles of cash into the economy when Republicans were in charge. And then Biden did the really dumb thing of saying, look at this giant fire of spending that the Republicans did. Let's throw gasoline on it. So like, um, I'm entirely happy to blame Joe Biden for his portion of it, but this is in, there's a lot of systemic stuff going on too, and bipartisan stuff going on too. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, let's move on to maybe a little more of the uh, immediate political implications. So in the sweep last week, uh, I covered the fact that Amy... Walters at Cook Political Report made the case that even with a wave election, you know, where 
any district that's falling within the margin of Biden disapproval numbers would be swept to the Republicans. You know, in the past, we've seen it's not unusual to see a 40 seat change. It would happen to see a 60 seat change in one of those wave elections. And her point was because of a whole lot of trends, both the sort of self-sorting of Americans, what David and others have referred to as the big sort, and gerrymandering that has made as many districts as humanly possible not competitive, um, a, a wave election no longer has the possibility really of having a 60 seat margin. You're looking at, according to, again, Amy Walters, 15 to 25 seats would be a big wave election. Um, however, there are those who are pushing back on this idea. One version of the pushback is that, in fact, they're just too low on how big this wave will be. Not that she's wrong about the sort of dynamics that would prevent it um, from being a 40 to 60 seat wave if uh, we're talking about a nine point swing. But what if it's a 12? What if it's a 14 point swing? Well, then you're looking at 40 seats. Okay, so that's one version of the pushback, but it's not really on the underlying dynamics. Um, but the other version is forget the House for a second. Let's look at the Senate where it's a lot more about the map. And in 2022, Democrats have an incredibly favorable map, and yet we are still talking about a, uh, you know, potentially two to four seat loss. Four seats would be kind of extreme, but again, with like a quote unquote big wave election, you could see New Hampshire, uh, Maggie Hassan falling, depending on the candidate that Republicans pick up there, um, Nevada. Um, but Steve... What was perhaps most interesting about this analysis was not 2022, but in fact, 2024, where, um, where Simon Bazelon, who was filling in on slow boring for Matt Iglesias, he did some back of the envelope math here. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, Democrats have averaged roughly 51% of the two-party vote in presidential elections. If Biden gets this percentage of the vote and the correlation between the Senate and presidential vote stays as close to 0.95 as it was in 2020, as in there aren't uh, ticket splitters, which we've seen fewer and fewer ticket splitters where they'll vote for one party for president and a different party for Senate. Then basically every Democratic senator in a state Biden won by less than 2%, who was up in 2024, is likely to lose. If you apply that, again, it's very back of the envelope. It's not taking into account any of the dynamics. You know, Joe Manchin winning in West Virginia he won by three points in 2018. He's up in 2024. This would have him losing by a lot if you just use that math. Um, that would put six current Democratic seats in the Republican column on top of whatever they win in 2022. Steve, that puts Republicans very close to a filibuster-proof majority in 20, January of 2025. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have to say, I, I read that analysis and I found it awfully persuasive. Um, the, the first thing we should say, particularly as it relates to, to 2024, is to remind people that that's a lot of time. A lot can happen and a lot will happen between now and then. Um, and, and, and it will shape and reshape our politics again and again and again. So if we've learned anything over the past, say, seven, eight years, Politics cannot be projected out on a straight line trajectory based on a, stat a static snapshot of what's happening at the moment. Having caveated the heck out of what I'm going to say, I, I think his analysis is strong. 
I think um, the 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 case for the outlook for Democrats in 2022 right now is close to catastrophic. And I've I've uh, talked to some Democrats who um, help run uh, these elections um, and and do some consulting, some polling on this. And catastrophic was the word they used. And this was uh, a month ago, six weeks ago, before we'd gotten the latest round of inflation numbers and before uh, what was happening in Ukraine spiraled even further out of control. They were saying that the numbers for Joe Biden and Democrats in 2022 were catastrophic and they have not gotten better. Um, You know, if you if you. A lot will depend, you know, if you look at if you're looking to 2024, the one thing Democrats will have if Republicans take the House, which I, I believe they will. And I, I Amy Walter is about the smartest analyst of this stuff out there. Um, and and your sweep, we'll put it in the show notes, uh, not this week, but the one before I thought provided a very smart analysis of what she was saying. I would bet on the high side of of that uh, in a pretty significant way. I think Democrats are going to be in a bad way in the House, which will obviously that environment um, creates challenges in the Senate. The only thing Democrats can say between 2022 and 2024 that looks to be good news right now is that it will be divided government. And then they won't be entirely uh, to blame for what happens. They will then be able to run against, you know, a, a Republican uh intransigent republican congress that won't let joe biden do anything given what joe biden has done i'm not sure that argument's going to be very powerful um but that i think is the best case scenario for democrats looking ahead at 2020 2024 and final point the internal republican fighting is likely to get significantly worse than it is today when the stakes are higher after 2022. Jonah, there's many things I thought of when I was reading that 2024 analysis and thinking about what the country could look like in 2025 if that came true. Um, But one thing really just kept rattling around my head, which is this idea that uh, Republicans constantly feel like they're losing and yet also feel like the elections are rigged against them, which is a little bit contradictory. But Democrats don't have that contradiction in their party. They very much feel like the country is with them, that people, the majority of Americans agree with them. And so when they lose elections, it's due to, you know, gerrymandering, um, this antiquated notion we have of states Um, And so the Senate is, in fact, a product of gerrymandering, things like that. What does it mean if liberals continue to hold uh, institutional places, academia, um, media, by which I mean more uh, movies, things like that, um, you know, corporate boards, but they then are losing elections at a really big level. I mean, a a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate would be kind of a crazy pushback on the liberal project. Would that mean anything to anyone? Um, I hope so. 
You know, I mean, I, you know, this is the, the the fundamental problem with both parties is that they are um, unduly influenced by a very thin sliver of activists who have an incorrect theory about what reality is and what the roles of parties are. And um, we see it more glaringly right now with the Democrats because, um, you know, David Shore has been running around like that woman at the end of the To Serve Man episode of The Twilight Zone saying, it's a cookbook, it's a cookbook, right? But instead, David Shore is saying, politicians should do popular things. And they look at him like he's got six heads. Um, and there, so there's this notion that is very popular among a very unpopular group of influencers um, that they can just will into the world the reality they want without the votes to support it. And, um, and I would like to think that's unsustainable. I, I'd like to think a lot of these things are unsustainable. I am trying to be more optimistic these days. And so the one of the things I am constantly looking for, and I have no doubt I'll be disappointed from time to time about it not actually being there, is to think about how America's capacity for self-correction can fix some of these things. So I think Disney, that Disney, you know, not to go too far afield on this, but it's a good illustration of it, that Disney... Um, all hands meeting where they talked about, you know, their not so hidden gay agenda and then getting more trans characters and, um, and all that kind of stuff was disastrous for, for Disney's brand. And the good news for people who don't want to see Disney to go too far afield from where its core capital is, um, uh, is shareholders aren't going to like that stuff. The market's not going to reward that kind of stuff. Similarly, a party that gets hooked on defund the police and, 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 uh, you know, modern monetary theory, which is just basically magical thinking with numbers, um, is going to get punished for it. And some ambitious politicians are going to say, Hey, wait a second. It turns out that the median black voter is way to the right of all of these pinheads telling me how to like do politics. Um, and maybe a more conservative mainstream approach for the Democratic Party will actually win elections. Um, you know, I, again, I think Joe Manchin is the most popular politician in America. I'm not a huge Joe Manchin fan, but he's sort of in the sweet spot. And yet he's a demon figure among Democrats. And so I think a lot of the elites um, running, you know, the, what, what Lenin would call the commanding heights of our culture, um, they've, they've really... It immunized themselves and bunkered themselves from the normal feedback signals that would tell them you're screwing things up and you need to stay in your lane. But those signals still exist. And maybe actually witnessing the Republican Party have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate um, would be a really powerful signal to some of these people to say, hey, look, I may have my own personal desires and I want to signal my virtue and whatever, but at the same time, I got to live in the country we have, not the country we want to a certain extent, and they'll moderate their behavior. Or they won't, and the living will envy the dead. I don't know. We're talking about the future here. David, how do you see this playing out between now and then? There just hasn't been a lot of appetite for the popularism 
that uh, David Shore has been a proponent of. Uh, and yet there's now more people saying, hey, look, you're heading toward catastrophic losses in 2024. And again, what I'm hearing is um, it doesn't matter because that's not a reflection of where the American people are because the Senate is a product of racist gerrymandering because states are racist. Well, so I was uh, in November, I was at a meeting where there were a lot of smart folks who are center left, almost all living in very blue areas. And I can't even begin to describe the level of gloom that they had about the future of the Democratic Party. That it was essentially like this. We all know what we need to do, and we all know we're not going to do it. That the social forces, the social dynamics within the party were so incredibly strong that even when you know it is better to try the popular things and, and popularism and you abandon sort of completely abandon the the agenda of the far left which is disproportionately online that even if you know that's right there's not going to be the will to do it and why is there not going to be the will to do it for a couple of reasons that are super related to just human nature one of them is that when you live and work and inhabit spaces that are super blue that's just where you live. And, and, you know, we need to be clear. The big sort means that an awful lot of us live in super red or super blue spaces. If you live in a place that's super blue, it's going to have an effect on you that makes you think that this, that, that world that you inhabit is reflective of the larger world more than it is. So you're just going to imbibe that sort of ethos just as a natural result of living. And then the other thing is the way that discourse works now and and especially online is that if you deviate from the most radical or from the radical position it's not just that you're going to be debated and somebody's going to discuss it with you and you're going to have coffee together and hash out modern monetary theory no you're going to be called a monster you're going to be viciously attacked and so the dynamic then is that you a you tend to move more left than the average american just because of where you are in the air that you breathe and then b when you try to move away from that you're gonna get clawed at and stun gunned and cattle prodded and so the social dynamics are so strong pushing a lot of the leadership of the party because again the you know in a, the cultural leadership of the left even more left uh, there are those in the party who are fighting against that 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 those dynamics are just overpowering but but uh i will say there's you know there's signs of pushback i mean we're going to have another san francisco recall election coming up here and it's looking like the san francisco da is going to get booted out of office um after three san francisco board members were booted out of office so i do think these electoral checks might be coming with more frequency which would mean that maybe we'll reach a point where the living are not envying the dead. But there is still a, this strong dynamic that's causing pessimism. And then the other thing is, to be fair to the um, liberal point of view on this, they've won every popular vote since 1988, except for one. Except for one. Um, I don't know how I'd feel <laughs> if... If I was part of a faction that won every popular vote, but won since in, in a generation 
in more than a generation. And well, this is the argument that the only reason then they're losing at the legislative level is due to gerrymandering, which they then tie back to racism. But their gerrymandering point isn't wrong, that states are arbitrary in that sense. Um, they're part of the founding you know, vision for how you govern a country, but they are arbitrary. And that the House at this point has been gerrymandered. Yes, I don't think there's really particular argument. You can argue about why and the motives behind it. But that that is the argument, is that when there's a national election, we win them. But then when there are these congressional elections, we're losing them. And that's why we shouldn't care about Congress, um, because clearly that's unfair. And the more people who vote, the better off we do. Although, again, that's just not, that's not quite it's not exactly right. They think that because it's a presidential election, that means the more people that vote, the more Democrats win. It's a little bit of a logical fallacy there because what as we've seen, um, in fact, when uh, total voter numbers go up, it is not necessarily better news for Democrats within presidential elections, um, which is different than so comparing. I, yeah. Two things I just want to be on the record about here. First, um, um, I think this dynamic, you know, I've been arguing for a very long time, has a lot to do with people wanting or thinking that we live in a parliamentary system and in a parliamentary system, you vote a party into power and then the party basically gets to do whatever the hell it wants until it's voted out. And you watch Democrats campaign in 2020. They all talked as if they were going to be the prime minister of America and they were going to implement their entire agenda on day one, even though like you have to get things through the Congress in our system to do that. More importantly, I just want to be on record that I do not think states are entirely arbitrary and all Texans who extrapolate from Sarah's comments that the state of Texas <laughs> is just simply some arbitrary social construction that oh. has no content to it whatsoever. Jonah. <laughs> Send your angry letters. Oh, I think most Texans would agree with me because our landmass should be much, much larger. Things were taken away from us. It is arbitrary on our Western border why we don't also have New Mexico, Arizona, and parts of California. Nice save. Nice save. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Steve, let's talk a little bit about NATO. Uh, Finland, Sweden, they're making moves. Yeah, they certainly seem to be. Um, I think it's likely that by uh, the middle of the summer, Finland and Sweden will be NATO members, which is precisely the opposite of what Vladimir Putin said publicly that he wanted to happen. 
um, without specifying those countries uh, as he launched his invasion of Ukraine. Um, as as they put it in this morning's morning dispatch, it is a tremendous self-own by Vladimir Putin. Um, what What's really striking to me is the dramatic shift that we've seen in popular opinion in those two countries uh, as the threat from Russia and Vladimir Putin went from being, at least in their minds, mostly theoretical to being very real. Um, in December, Finland's Ministry of Defense reported 24% of the population supported a NATO bid. In Sweden, it went from 41% to 59% uh, in just in March. So you've seen this dramatic shift um, in at least those Scandinavian attitudes toward Russia. And it's not surprising. Finland has a, a long, shares a long border with, with Russia. Um, we've seen every single day across the world, the footage coming out of Russia and what Vladimir Putin's aggression has meant to Ukraine and what it could mean uh, in a pretty real way to other countries if he were to continue. David, this felt really obvious. Why in the last six weeks would any other country look at what's going on and not say, hey, you know what? Uh, I think I'm going to join NATO. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have been obvious even if Russia had succeeded in its initial plan. In other words, More that obvious. it had... Yeah, absolutely. If it had decapitated the Ukrainian leadership and had seized Kiev in the first few days and had pulled sort of a, 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 a you know, Crimea, the sequel, except bigger and larger, it would have been incredibly obvious. Uh, yeah, you know, I think when, when historians look back at this move by Putin, you know, we don't yet know the final outcome of the military conflict, although we do know that Russian expectations were, initial expectations were thoroughly defeated, but we're just still a few weeks into what's looking to be a pretty, uh, sustained military conflicts. We don't know the outcome of that, but historians are going to look back at this and they're going to observe that Vladimir Putin was acting on some of the worst intelligence and worst predictions <laughs> uh, that we've seen in modern times regarding the ability, uh, his ability to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Because if there's one thing that he's been, we know he's been trying to do for a very long time, it is not only sort of dominate his near abroad, it is also to destabilize NATO. He's had these twin goals. He's wanted to destabilize NATO. He wants to dominate the near abroad. And both of those took an, both of those goals and objectives uh, took an enormous, at least temporary setback. Um, he's not dominating Ukraine like he thought he did. And he has definitely not destabilized NATO. And it looks like to the if we don't know the long-term outcome of the Ukrainian conflict, one long-term outcome that we already are seeing staring right at us is a larger NATO and a more solidified NATO and a more bulked up German military, which would be the last thing that he would have wanted. So the miscalculations here are just staggering. Jonah. Yeah. So, um, I really don't like the way Joe Biden uses the, we will do, we will protect every inch of NATO rhetoric for pol domestic political purposes. Um, it just, it makes it sound like he's doing something incredibly brave and bold and he wants credit to be a wartime president where he's basically declaring, we're not going to get involved, <laughs> but we're going to protect stuff that's not under attack. 
That said, I think him saying that is hugely valuable and important for international diplomacy because the signal it sends is once you're in the club, you'll be fine. And um, let's put it this way. If, if our NATO commitments weren't there or Poland weren't part of NATO, I'm not sure Poland would be willing to take in 10% of its population now is Ukrainian refugees. They would have a really strong and understandable impulse to fortify their border and militarize their border for fear of being next. And, but knowing that NATO has got their back, it gives Poland the ability to be much more forward-facing in terms of dealing with the refugee crisis and, and, and arming the Ukrainians and all the rest. And it also sends a signal that in the club, you're great. So Finland and Sweden are like, maybe we should come on board. Um, and so I, I, it's, it's one of these things that I, I think that it's being played badly for domestic political purposes, but for international diplomatic purpose and strategic purposes, I think it's a really valuable thing to say. And we're seeing the fruit of it right now. Steve, where does Russia go from here? I mean, that's a scary thing to contemplate, right? And and uh, we've talked about it before, but you know, it's not unreasonable, as as uh, other analysts have pointed out, that to, to believe that the more that Vladimir Putin feels embarrassed and cornered, the more likely he is to strike out in uh, aggressive, uh, in, in more aggressive ways. Um, I don't see that he has really any other recourse. You've seen in the public rhetoric coming out of the the Russian regime that they are now talking about um, consolidating the, the Crimean Peninsula and es essentially uh, you know, making life safe for Russian speakers in that part of what was Ukraine. Um, that's not why he did this. And you know, he may be able to save face in Russia by spinning this in part because uh, you know, the information bubble is, is hard to, to penetrate there. But that's not going to work in the international community. And I think, you know, as he gradually comes to accept and appreciate that, I think it does incentivize him to to be more aggressive. We've heard reports uh, over the past week that the changes in leadership and military leadership in terms of who's overseeing the campaign portend those kinds of, of weeks to come. And that's a grim reality. Well, okay, let's wrap up on some other notes. One, last week I talked about a mother fox who had bitten nine people and I made hay, light, whatever you want to say, out of the fact that I believed this mother fox was simply defending her three cubs. They had euthanized her to test her for rabies and I was thankful that they had found the three cubs. Unfortunately, this story has a particularly grim and sad ending. The mother fox was found to have had rabies, which meant that all three kits had to be put down as well, and that all nine of those people then have to go through rabies treatment, which is not fun and pretty painful. Um, and I blamed them for getting in the way of the mother fox. It seems now that I should not have uh, been so quick to judge them, and I apologize for blaming them for getting bitten by a rabid fox. My bad, but <laughs> victim blaming Sarah. Victim, blaming. victim blaming. My goodness. Uh, but I have two, two new things to make up for it. One, uh, this week, a puppy, a puppy 
A 10-week-old Australian shepherd named Pablo was stolen at gunpoint in D.C. The city went on a search for the horrible people who would dare to steal a puppy at gunpoint as its owner was holding it, clutching it outside the CVS. Pablo has been found. People have been arrested uh, in this crime. Unfortunately, they believe these people also stole another puppy at gunpoint. That puppy has not been found. So the search continues for the little Frenchie. Um, and we, we hope that the Frenchie is found. He's one year old. His name is Bruno. He's wearing a black collar if you see him. Um, and next up, there was this headline and David, it's really just for you here. <laughs> New York times military memo deepens mystery of possible interstellar visitor to earth. Uh, uh, and and say more. What? Yeah. Say more, Sarah. <laughs> so David, it's not quite as exciting as it sounds. That's the bummer. Um, so in early 2014, a dishwasher sized meteor dashed over the shores of Papua New Guinea before sunrise as it burned up in the fiery friction of Earth's atmosphere. But two Harvard researchers argued that this wasn't just any space rock. It originated from another star system, they said, making it the first observed meteor of interstellar origin. Now, David, why do I bring this story to you? Because one of those Harvard researchers is Harvard astronomer Avi Loeb, who we had on AO as one of our special August guests to talk about interstellar meteor visitors to Earth. And to air his grievances against his critics. There was a lot of airing of grievances in that interview. <laughs> so he was dismissed as he was dismissed last time. Um, but last month, the U.S. Space Command released a memo to NASA scientists that stated the data from the missile warning satellite sensors, quote, was sufficiently accurate to indicate an interstellar trajectory for the meteor. I mean, he sounds pretty vindicated to me, David. These aren't aliens, but a meteor. I mean, it counts for something. We don't invite charlatans onto advisory opinions. That's just that's just the rule. And so he's vindicated here. Uh, let's see what happens with what was the name of the interstellar object that drifted through us or didn't it, drift? Yeah, Muamua, Umua, Yeah, that was yeah. the cool one because that one didn't have the right shape to have been naturally made. Was his argument? It was too thin. This one, however, it appears was like just a normal rock. Uh, Jonah, on a scale of one to 10, how excited are you about this story? 14. <gasps> I don't no, believe you. <laughs> um, I, oh, oh, I was accounting for inflation using constant uh, uh, excitement dollars. Uh, yes. Four. Core CPI. Core CPI. <laughs> but I bet you were really excited that they found Pablo the puppy. I was hugely excited. I, I, I never never dm people on twitter and say hey can you retweet me but i did for pablo because actually a friend the woman who's owns pablo is a friend of a friend of mine Whoa. and he, te he texted me saying hey can you help out and i was like stolen puppy do you think like this is a a question i do want to say uh and now that uh, steve had to drop out um which always makes things more fun around here yeah. um we should stop using the phrase stolen. I know because the law says they're limited for property, blah, 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 abducted. Because these are- I'm on board these, with that. Yeah, these are abductions and it's yeah. outrageous. And you're not 
supposed to steal puppies or abduct puppies. I maybe took this like I was in like maybe a weird place. I, you know, read the story late at night. I was like watching it unfold on Twitter. And late at night is never a good time to read sort of something that emotionally affects you. It just can hit you kind of weird. Um, like that meteor bouncing off the atmosphere. And so immediately in my head was like, what would you do? Right? Like you're you're clutching your new puppy and someone puts a gun to your stomach. It's four guys in masks. On the one hand, whether they shoot you or not, they're going to get the puppy because there's four of them and one of you and they could shoot you. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, Jonah, what would you do? I would probably give them the puppy and then I would cry for a week. I mean, if this were one of your dogs, you would hand the leash over to well, the four I mean, guys like, I mean, in a mask. Look, it, the thing is, is like you have to. I mean, Zoe there, can fight for herself, but Pippa, yeah, like first of all, no one, Pippa. no, no one's stealing Zoe. But um, <laughs> uh, um, and the the and you know who's really safe is Megan McCardle and Peter Suderman because they have like three hundred pounds of of mastiff. Um, but um, uh, you know, you have to, like having grown up where I was mugged quite a few times <laughs> in my childhood in my teen years in New York City, um, like. You have to sort of think, who am I helping if it's four dudes with guns if I put up a fight, you know? And there is a chance that you can get your dog back if you're not dead um, and your family isn't attending your funeral. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I would like, I, 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 would, I would have all sorts of fantasies about, you know, going full ninja and tearing out their throats and showing them their beating hearts and all that kind of stuff. But four dudes with a gun. Prudence, I think, should tell you. David, my question to you is, is this a masculinity test? Is this actually a bigger masculinity test than the Will Smith-Chris Rock slap? <laughs> <laughs> Four dudes with a gun and your dogs. Uh, is that a mask? Do you do you fight to the death for your dogs? Is that Not a masculinity? Not fight to the death. I don't know. Do you try to run But four dudes Something. with a gun, that's what you're asking. Yeah, or do I guess. you fight to the death with your, for your dogs? Maybe. You fight to the death for your kids. That, so um, that was my next question is, okay, you're yeah. holding, like, don't make it a puppy, now make it a baby. But Jonah's, in theory, Jonah's doesn't have a limiting principle here because you still have a better chance of getting the baby back alive if you're not dead. Yeah, no, there's a trolley problem brain thing here, but I fight to the death for my kid, I, I think. Okay, so you let them shoot you for the, for the kid, but not for the dog. I think so. Yeah, you fight to the death for the kid. There's a difference between dogs and humans. There is. I'm not. I'm not denying that. But but Jonah's principle was he it's about the chance of what happens next, which is if you're dead, you're dead, and if you live, you have a chance of helping to recover whatever was taken from you. Yeah, but there's also a notion of what kind of horrors they're going to visit upon your child. You know that you would okay die to spare them. That they're stealing. They're they're abducting the dog to sell it, right? And. They're, and what they're going to sell the dog. I mean, they're not going to make like really gross underground films with the dog. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it just, I, I, we're getting a little dark here, but uh, <laughs> we, um, we were, uh, yeah, you teased one other thing. Oh, that's right. Last thing. The thing that didn't make the podcast, Jonah. <laughs> yeah. So yesterday on the conference call about this podcast, I said, with great resignation and, oh, and exhaustion, mm. I guess we're going to have to talk about Elon Musk. And 
Literally, we were like, what should we talk about? And Jonah was like, I guess we're going to have to talk about Elon Musk. It was the first thing that came out of his mouth. This wasn't there. I didn't hear any resignation or delay. And um, (laughs) I got a, uh, it was like I had walked in onto like the, the, the ninth hole on the green right when the sprinklers went off and everybody started spraying uh, skepticism and invective at me for, for suggesting such a thing. So, and I will say both of you guys had already talked about it on advisory opinions. So like maybe climb out of the saddle on that very high horse of yours. Um, but, uh, David, uh, should we, or should we not have talked about Elon Musk on this podcast? I was fine. I was fine talking about it. The person who said no was Steve. Steve was like, no, Absolutely not. I was fine talking about it, but I didn't know what I was going to say that I didn't already say on advisory opinions just a few minutes before the call. Uh, Jonah was kind enough not to note that when Steve said, absolutely not, we're not talking about Elon Musk, that you and I did not mention that we had already covered it on AO. We were just like, yeah, yeah. I don't think we need to. Good point, <laughs> yeah. Steve. No, and of course not. Who we would talk about Jonah, that? Like just <laughs> hanging mm-hmm. all by himself, floating. <laughs> so... And again, I, 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 I'm sort of persuaded that we shouldn't talk about it because to me, the only interesting things to talk about it right now are how people are talking about it too much and people are f- losing their minds about it, right? I mean, it's just really weird. Um, yeah, you mean because nothing has actually happened aside from basically a tweet saying that he wants to buy Twitter with no prospect that that's going to happen? Pretty much, yes. But it did serve to highlight how broken Twitter is because there have been plenty of highlights as, to that reel, David. Oh, I know. But it was sort of like a microcosm of just how ridiculous that website is in so many respects. Um, and it would be easy to sneer at or to just sort of say, oh, please, this is what the 15th ranked social media site in the world. 14 other social media sites have more in, involvement in traffic. But the problem is every last or, you know, 99.9% of our quote unquote political elite aren't just on that site. They're on that site, marinating on that site and imbibing all that brokenness. Okay. So here's what we're going to end on a question to our member listeners to put in the comment section, your answer. And you who are not a member can become a member for $10 a month and put your own answer to this in the comment section. Uh, would you like a reoccurring segment about what we decided we weren't going to talk about on this podcast <laughs> called Not Worth Your Time? <laughs> Let us know whether you'd like to hear more about what wasn't worth your time that we then talk about why it wasn't worth your time. <laughs> and with that, we will talk to you again next week. That's right. I got it right this time. I didn't say see you again. So booyah, Jonah, in your face. I think the phrase is see you next time. But anyway, a, a forever. Family 
cannolis and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.